fantasy of kind of what these ideal companies look like, but it's getting from point A to point B is really complicated because it's not just the people in our industry that are going to make those changes, but it's going to have to come from leadership, legislation, making sure that people are, that healthcare is available to all, like, you know, these really, really big changes that are going to have such a positive impact on our society. Welcome to The Profitable Table, fed by Woolco Foods, the nation's first podcast devoted to the business and lifestyle of the hospitality industry. Now, here's your host, Woolco Foods CEO, Stephen Toberoff. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Profitable Table, fed by Woolco Foods. I'm your host, Stephen Toberoff, and today my guest is Caroline Schiff, and I've been So very much looking forward to this interview, Caroline. So thank you for taking the time to come in and or or on the phone, actually, but to speak with me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. So Caroline, I know right now you're the executive pastry chef at Gage and Tallner. And, you know, I I first became aware of you and started following your amazing Instagram account when you posted such kind comments about our drivers. And you've been doing such phenomenal work in the community. You know, I want to get into all of that, but your story is really interesting as I was doing some research leading up to this interview. So would you mind telling us a little bit about sort of how you got into the the culinary arts and your journey to where you are now as an executive pastry chef? Yeah, sure. I've been in the industry a bit over a decade now, which is so wild to say because it feels like <laughs> it feels like it's just flown by. You know, I didn't go to culinary school. I have an academic degree and, you know, but food was really always the thing I loved the most. I loved baking. I loved cooking. It was always, I mean, from the time I was a little girl and I kind of just always had that itch to scratch, I guess. And so after uh, going to university and everything, I really wanted to work in kitchens and I kind of didn't really know exactly like how to get started because I didn't have that culinary school foot in the door thing that a lot of people have. So I got an internship and that kind of just set me off. And that internship was actually with Sohee Kim at the Good Fork back in 2008. And she's now the executive chef and partner at Gage and Colner. So I've kind of come like full circle with her as my you know mentor and chef over the years. That's incredible. And you know, I, I know that you studied French at St. Andrews. I did, but what I yeah. found so compelling and would you know like to explore a little further is you obviously have pursued this because you've loved cooking. It's a passion of yours, and that's obvious. What are your thoughts? Because I, I think it's so terrific that this was a journey that began utilizing the internship route as opposed to the culinary school route. I think that there's so many professions that would benefit from people going the intern route versus taking on a traditional education and looking. One, do you think that's an avenue that's still available to people today? And two, now that you've ascended within this industry and and in your career, what are your thoughts about internship versus a culinary education from your perspective now as an executive pastry chef? 
That's a great question. I think that it's definitely still an avenue that I would encourage a lot of people to pursue. Just make sure if you take an internship um, for anybody out there listening who wants to do it, make sure you're getting paid, you're getting treated fairly, you're getting compensated because you are doing work, even if you're at the bottom of the ladder, so to speak. It's a great way to learn. It's a great way to get your foot in the door and also figure out if you like it and you really want to do it before you spend close to six figures, or I don't even know what it costs. I'm going to guess near six figures on culinary school. So I think it's a great way to learn, get your foot in the door, meet chefs, figure out what kind of restaurant you want to work at and do it with a chef who likes to mentor and likes to teach. I was really lucky to find somebody who loves doing that. But that all of that being said, I don't think that culinary school is a bad thing. I think if it's something that you really want to do and you can afford it comfortably, sure, it's it's great. I know tons of people who, who went that route and had a wonderful experience, but I think that it's not necessary. <laughs> no, I, I agree. And I think especially there's so many dimensions to working in the restaurant industry because it's a job that requires enormous creativity. It requires physical stamina. It requires people skills. Require, it's, it's so multidimensional. And I think if someone has the passion and they're fortunate enough to find the right mentor, I cannot believe that the education you would get in any formal setting is better than studying with someone who is really a terrific chef in whatever aspect of of cuisine they are, and you get to learn from working directly with them. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, the other thing to remember is that culinary school is quite brief. You'll do a a unit on bread and then move on to the next thing. So you're getting like just a little sense of what each kind of thing is. You don't really get to like really truly dive into something. Whereas if you are somebody who is just like so over the moon about making pasta, you can go and you can work in a restaurant where they make fresh pasta and that's like all you do for a year and you can come out and be just the most phenomenal pasta maker. So it's kind of like, I think you're not really sure, you know, maybe culinary school is a great place to kind of start to explore that if it's something that, if it's something that is an option to you, but the world of food and cooking and restaurants and all of that, it's just so, so vast. And I don't think that culinary school can really prepare you for it in a super full way, I guess. You know, there was something, you know, sort of following up on this as well. I read an interview that you gave in Chef's Role, I believe, and it really sort of dovetails nicely into what we're talking about because the reason I started this podcast was because I wanted to create a podcast where the content was at least partially focused on the sort of business or administrative side of the restaurant and hospitality industry because there's an enormous amount of great content out there on recipes and stuff for foodies and all of that stuff is incredibly important and enjoyable. But I've seen many people who have a real love and passion for the industry and they have had a difficult time with the aspects that are required to to run the business side of it. And when I was reading this interview that you gave, when you ascended up the ladder in your career, uh, you had been given the opportunity to take on and spend more time on some of the challenges associated with managing people and and aspects of running a um, 
a restaurant, a, a pastry division, whatever. And I was wondering if you'd share with us some of the most important lessons you've learned in that area as well, if that if that makes sense. Sure. Because you know, I remember reading that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, oh, and like right now, it's just it's like the hardest time to be in our industry. You thought we all thought it was hard. <laughs> and now it's like, oh my gosh, it's never been harder. It's so crazy. <laughs> but that's what I love about your social media. And I do want to, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt you. You know, like I'm a very positive, upbeat person. And you'll see from interviews that I've done during this, some of my guests have been very positive and, and we'll get into our outlook and projections for the future. But what I love about your social media is it really is a, a breath of fresh air and positivity that's not just focusing on beautiful photos and cuisine, but what you're doing in the community and just every aspect about it, because you're right. I mean, something I've gotten out of this is I've got so much more respect for everyone that we have the pleasure to do business with because of the resiliency and tenacity and humanity that people in this industry are showing. And I, you know, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you there, but oh, I did just you. want to jump yeah. in and say that. So no, I, I, no, not at all. I mean, I, I think this has been like such a challenging, such a challenging time for our industry. And I'm, I'll be the first person to admit that like my strengths are not in running a business. My strengths are not in management and operations and all of that. I'm much more of a creative person. Um, I'm much more of a big ideas person and all of that. But you can't just make a living being that as a chef. So I've had the opportunity and also I've been given the responsibility of learning and having to manage people and doing costing and understanding labor costs, food costs, overhead, all of that. And it's honestly one of the, I think one of the most valuable things that I've learned and it sounds a little <laughs> sounds a little negative, but I have a good point. This industry kind of really on paper, like it doesn't make sense. Your margins aren't very good at all. I mean, you look at a business plan and there's not much return on investment or anything like that. But so so what I've learned is kind of that the way it exists is and has been existing is is not sustainable. So my takeaway is that we have to start thinking about how we can how we can change it. How can we how can we be more profitable? How can we be more sustainable? How can we offer employees better benefits? How can we make sure that people get a living fair wage, which is, it's not minimum wage. It's certainly not minimum wage in New York. How do we give people better quality of life and still make food that is accessible, affordable, delicious, good quality. I mean, that's a really, really, really big challenge. So I've learned that the numbers are not good, even in good times. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. It's a very challenging financial setup for restaurants. And I think you're you're absolutely on point in terms of one of the main areas of thought that's going on right now. From my vantage point, there's no question in my mind that people desperately want to go out and socialize in restaurants and socialize in cafes and resume the the aspect of life that enable them to um to enjoy those things and other aspects but i do think it is a time for a rethink about how the restaurant industry can change and address the issues you've brought up and have you thought of any now that you've been involved sort of in this challenge and in this challenging time have you come up with anything that you would say would work i wish i had more concrete answers i have the fantasy of kind of what these ideal companies look like but 
it's getting from point A to point B is really complicated because it's not just the people in our industry that are going to make those changes, but it's going to have to come from leadership, legislation, making sure that people are, that healthcare is available to all. Like, you know, these really, really big changes that are going to have such a positive impact on our society. We need cooperation and partnership and understanding from those people in government, both local and on a federal level. But I think that throughout COVID, I've sort of the thing that was just so shocking to me, I mean, well, it, was, it wasn't shocking, but at the same time, you know, I woke up the day after we, you know, got word that we had to shut down and we kind of, you know, packed up the walk-ins at the restaurant and we cleaned and everybody left. And we all knew sort of, okay, this isn't good. Everybody's going to get laid off. We all knew, you know, this is, this is not a good sign. This was the day before our grand opening, by the way. I woke up the next morning and I was in such shock because. I'm talking to colleagues, I'm talking to friends, and overnight, so many people were left with absolutely nothing. And I don't think that any other industry really experienced that. Possibly people who do like domestic work, people who watch children, caretakers, those kind of professions as well. But it was absolutely shocking to understand that so many people who I work with and people in my industry were left without savings, without health care, without any kind of cushion, without next month's rent. Just mind-blowing. And that should tell you so much about the state of our industry and what needs to change, that if you lose your job the next day, you, you have nothing unless you are a person of privilege. You said that so well, Caroline, and it, I read an article. I mean, I, I can relate to what you're saying. I mean, it, it was such a quick uh, transition because the week before the shutdown, and as you remember, there was incremental diminution in how much capacity restaurants could hold and all that. But literally the week before the shutdown, we had generated more gross profit than the same week the year before, even with the incremental stuff. It was miraculous. And the next week, it was like sales were literally down 82%. Overnight, I'd never, you know, we've been through the the crisis of 2008. We've been through 9/11. We'd been through Sandy. There was nothing like this. But more direct to your point, I read an article in Eater, which was um, really devastating. That you have people who had been working in restaurants and are now homeless and sleeping in parks. They're not getting any of the government benefits and. I, I think you're absolutely right. And, I, you know, talk about government response. I do think that there's been a level of insensitivity on the part of the mayor. He said something yesterday that I thought was very much tone deaf, and he's changed it, which is that he was positioning it like, well, you know, people that have the means can eat out and it's a luxury, but they'll get over it. And I'm paraphrasing here. But there was such insensitivity to the literally thousands of people that are working to send money home or that are living paycheck to paycheck. And um, you're right, it was devastating. And and I think it was just such a myopic and insensitive or foolish characterization of this industry and what it does. Yeah. And I mean, we, restaurants, I, I, I think when, when, you, when we talk to friends and family throughout quarantine and COVID, people are like, oh, I can't wait to go out again. I can't wait to go just like sit at a bar with a friend again or, and all of that stuff. It's like... That's what we provide. We provide this amazing experience that feeds you, it nourishes you, it's delicious. It's like a social thing. It's so part of the fabric of society. And then 
when something like COVID happens, which was beyond even my wildest nightmare, we were completely just thrown out. I, I mean, as some people I work with were just some of my community, my professional community. It's absolutely devastating to see what they've been going through. No question about it. And there are people who have been institutions and neighborhoods that were line cooks at diners or pick any position you want in any restaurant in any neighborhood and the the, the damage that's been inflicted. And again, I have to circle back to it because it is my vantage point. The absolute indifference and insensitivity on the part of local government. I interviewed Remy, and I'm not I'm not a political person, and I don't mean to be political, but I, I did an earlier interview with Remy Labah. This was way back in March or April. And at that point, it wasn't even on the radar what was happening in the hospitality industry in New York. The only person that was, it, there was some mentioning of it at the federal level. And I think that's really unfortunate because, you know, you make a great point in terms of the fabric of life in New York City and the five boroughs. But I don't think people really appreciate the quality of the people that work in these establishments and what they do on a daily basis and how integral they are and how much they depend every week on that paycheck and to just have it disappear overnight. And you're right. For so many, there was no safety net. I, I think there needs to be a much broader conversation about the whole thing where it's all looked at. Absolutely. And so, you know, to circle back, it's like, well, you know, in my dream world, there's healthcare for all. And we have things like 401ks are, are, are not just for wealthy people. They're for every, you know, we can, everybody has like, you know, access to these things. Rents are, there's more affordable housing. And I'm talking about real affordable housing, not Mayor de Blasio's uh, idea of affordable housing. Uh, all of these things, you know, that the restaurant industry, we can't make those changes. And we can't just simply tack $10 onto every dish and say, okay, now we're going to buy healthcare for everybody. Like, that's not how it's going to work. So we need leaders who really understand how, what a huge employer we are. I mean, we're millions and millions of people. We're the largest employer. Hospitality is the largest employer. And I'm talking about everything from fast food, fast casual delis to the per se's of the world. We are the absolute largest employer. So you have to give those people benefits and they kind of have to be universal. It can't be like, oh, this restaurant group offers that and these guys offer that. It's got to come from the top and it's got to be standard. Sort of in conjunction with that, I, I had a conversation with somebody that I disagreed with when the government was uh, giving out the $1,200 checks and this person said, um, well, you know, it's just going to create a disincentive for people. And I said, you know what? I don't remember there being a whole lot of outcry when the banks and ultra uh, well-capitalized entities in 2008 were literally recapitalized with hundreds of billions of dollars. And let's go back to 2008 for a minute. That money could have easily been given to the hairstylist in Clifton, New Jersey, who speculated on buying three condos thinking that he or she was going to flip them and it didn't work out. Well, that person was forced to face the financial consequences of their decision, but the bank at the top that was facilitating the behavior didn't. And I think if we're ever going to be doing sort of massive government intervention, which we've done in the past to the benefit of certain industries and certain people, now's the time for that rethink. And I almost think it's going to be forced on the city, Caroline, because of what's going on with the rent and the partial payment and the non-payment of it. At some point, that's going to have to be addressed on a macro level. And I'm hoping that when they do, there's something done that acknowledges 
this, you know, the hospitality sector and other sectors, not just the banking sector. We've bailed them out for years. How about something done that's going to contribute to the economy and contribute to people, but in a different segment of the economy? There's no difference whatsoever other than the aspect of society or the, or the, the economic segment of society that you're choosing to benefit, you know? I, I'm hopeful it will come. I mean, I, I do think that there's a lot of things going on right now in the city that just something as simple as, you know, for the past, let's go back the past 10 years, so many phenomenal restaurants that we did business with that were very busy and had great clientele and all of that, they had to close their doors because they could not afford the rent renewal. I believe this is the first time since 2009 where I believe that tenants and, and bakeries and restaurants are going to have leverage with landlords, unless the government gets in the way. I certainly hope you're right. Um, thus far, it's hard to say. I'm not a business owner, so I'm not, and I'm not a partner, so I'm not privy to, I, I'm not in that world, but from chefs in my community, it's a wide range. I talk to some who say their landlord has been very kind and, and they've been able to work out a deal and they're working through it and it's going to be okay. And then others where the landlord is just like, nope, if you don't pay, that's it. You know, I'm hoping you're right. I'm hoping that the city steps in because we need these small businesses, not just because I think small business is wonderful and, and gives the city life and charm and character and all of these wonderful things, which is the reason why we love to live here. But we're talking about hundreds of thousands of jobs and these places will sit vacant and just it's a waste. It's such a waste. So I'm hoping you're right. But I think the next few months are going to are going to really tell. Yeah, I hope I am too. I could be wrong on this. 08 was really just sort of a financial reset. This is something different. And I think you're absolutely right. I think these next few months are going to be critical. I think one thing I'm seeing from from my vantage point, you know, thank God, is that a lot of restaurants, as I said earlier, they're showing resiliency. I think that there are certain things that have occurred which are beneficial to the restaurant hospitality community that absolutely need to go on uh, in perpetuity. One is the outside dining. That needs to continue even when things are back to normal because it's going to create an opportunity. And and that, when I say that, I mean, you can't charge the people a usurious rent for putting stuff outside or try to fleece them with higher taxes. The other thing that I'm hearing from our customers is that the alcoholic beverages to go has been very helpful in generating revenue. Well, that's really saved a lot of businesses. I mean, I, I've spoken to bar owners and just small restaurants and stuff like that. That to-go alcohol has has really, really saved their business. And um, I hope that Governor Cuomo allows it to allows it to continue. I do. <laughs> well, so do I. And I, I, I had an interview earlier with a restaurant attorney, Jasmine Moy, and she articulated it quite nicely. There's a level of cruelty in the way that it just gets renewed every month and everyone's biting their nails to see if it'll extend it. It's obviously working. It's obviously something that the establishments want. Why can't they today renew it for two or three years? So at least that aspect of uncertainty is removed. Because it's not just the challenges. It's the challenges are coming at this industry in a way that's so unpredictable and so nerve-wracking that I think some of that can be addressed. And, and I don't know why it isn't, but I, I'm hoping the pendulum will swing back in the favor, or at least in, in the favor of equity and yeah. justice, you know? Yeah. 
I mean, the, the uncertainty, I think, is really the hardest thing right now. And I think that New York is doing really pretty great. Obviously, you know, it's summer, it's lovely, so people can enjoy this outdoor dining, but we have incredibly low rates of the virus right now. And so we're moving into fall and things feel like, oh, you know, maybe we're going to go back to normal, you know, as we were talking a little bit before we started recording, you know, are schools going to reopen? Are they not? And I think for a lot of small businesses, restaurants, bars, cafes, we Obviously, we want to get back to work, but the idea of reopening, rehiring, investing in that, doing indoor dining, and then if things get bad again, having to do another shutdown, businesses that right now are going to survive, if they have to go through that, they won't. And that is also very, very scary, that level of uncertainty that I think we're, we're kind of looking at for the fall. That's really very scary. Yeah. It is. It's a very challenging situation, and it's one that requires a steady hand of leadership, and unfortunately, I don't think we have that. Let me ask you this, though, to just sort of shift gears a little bit. Major changes, and this is certainly that, have always led to some sort of new trends or new dynamics in this industry. So I remember back in 08, the trend that was most prominent when the economy slowly started to recover was you had a lot of restaurants opening in a lot of different areas with a focus on quality food first in low-key locations. Because prior to that, you know, one aspect of New York dining, and I guess it always has been and it will be in the future, is having these amazing spaces with this amazing ambiance and the whole experience. And almost the quality of the food or the experience was second or third down the list of why you'd go there. That changed a lot for the new openings in 08 and 09. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts in terms of trends that you might see emerging in the short or longer term as a result of what we've been going through for the past several months. That's a great question. I don't know if I've thought too much about that. Um, I kind of feel... I think it would be really nice to just sort of have a and 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 this this does exist now but kind of thinking back to 2008 that's when I just started in restaurants in 2008 so I look back on that period I mean I know it was financially very stressful for a lot of people but you know I I got a job as a line cook and I was like this is great. Like I'm totally in love with this like crazy world I've stepped into. Those sort of mom and pop restaurants that were kind of opening up in these areas of Brooklyn where there there wasn't like too much kind of going on yet, like the Good Fork, they were pioneers down in Red Hook where I worked. You know, I remember when Roberta's first opened up in Bushwick and that was just like an enclave for artists to meet up after they were like in their studios all day. Those things don't exist anymore in that sense. And I wonder and sort of hope that with maybe rents coming down a bit, maybe like a, a bit of, of humbleness coming back to New York in a way, if there's sort of a maybe a return of creatives because the city becomes a little bit more affordable. And then we sort of see, again, these small businesses popping up a bit where they don't have to pay $20,000 in rent. Maybe they can find spots for $3,000 a month and they can open a, a cute little space and have it be profitable. I just, I remember how dreamy that felt in 2008. 
and walking into these little places that had 30 seats and it's run by like six people and the owners are part of the operation and the investors are some friends and like you can't that kind of business like leading up to COVID like that you couldn't do that anymore in the city and just make like good, simple, everyday food that people really, really love. There would be something really nice about sort of returning to that and kind of grounding ourselves again in what it means to just make food for our community, make food for our neighbors. I mean, it's, that's, that's why I, that's why I do this, <laughs> you know, because I just love to cook for people that I love. And that's it. <laughs> I think that there was even something going on in New York that was in alignment with what you were saying. It's like, I grew up in New York in the 70s and the 80s. Obviously, it was a different city. You know, you had obviously more crime and it was grittier. But there was that community. What I feel has happened in New York over the past, you know, let's call it 10 years, is obviously the quality of life and cleanliness and and all of the good things. That's great. But you have a lot of people that only live in New York a few months a year You've had massive proliferation of chains, be they banks, be they drugstores. The city lost a lot of what made it a great walking city. You could walk 20 blocks and you'd be in a totally different community. Or within your own community, there would be 5, 10, or 15 independent you know, businesses, be they restaurants, bakeries, shoe store, whatever it was. And we lost that. And I think that for the first time in a long time, there's at least a chance that that can come back. Well, of course, when it does come back, it's going to attract everybody again to come back to New York. But I hope that type of reset can occur because you're absolutely right. There was a lack of, I don't want to be too dramatic, but it was just a very different city. Let's leave it like that. Whatever the challenges were, you definitely felt different in New York walking around the 70s and the 80s and seeing people you knew and going into businesses where you knew and versus what we have now. Yeah. And I, I mean, like back in, you know, 2008, and, and I use the Good Fork as an example, because in Red Hook at the time, there really wasn't much else down there. And it was this quiet, I, I still love Red Hook. I think it's such a great neighborhood, but it was a pretty quiet neighborhood. There were artists, there were some warehouses, there were people that had lived there their entire lives. Really just like this, you know, little kind of like, you know, Brooklyn neighborhood that was like a little, a little difficult to get to. And at the Good Fork every night, I mean, I would say half of the clientele were people that we knew. It was the neighbors, it was the community. And so there was an incredible sense of just togetherness. It's been a long time since I've experienced that in New York, and but it has been a silver lining of the pandemic is this sense of knowing our neighbors and taking care of each other and just kind of like coming together a bit. Absolutely. I mean, I remember I moved back from Chicago to New York in 1992. Before we moved to Jersey City, we were in the Meatpacking District and I lived on Horatio Street. And at that moment in time, uh, 92, 93, in the meatpacking district, you had an independent coffee house, you had garages, you actually had the meat market there. And so I saw that neighborhood change very quickly. You know, you had Florent there, a great restaurant. And, um, you know, I, I, I think your point's well taken. I think that this has really brought people back to what's elemental and what's important. And hopefully that aspect of this will not dissipate because uh, it's so important. And Bakeries and pastries and restaurants 
such a crucial part of it, you know, in New York. Now, one thing I did read about you, I, I just have to touch on this because I'm into it as well. I saw that you're a runner. I love running too. I've had the chance to run the New York City Marathon a few times, but what's it been? And it must be, because I've seen some videos on YouTube when things were very quiet. If you've been running, I mean, what's, what was it like running in New York? Was it a very different experience, obviously, not when things were much quieter and emptied out? Yeah, right in the beginning of like the first few weeks of quarantine, I like didn't want to go out and run at all. I was like too just freaked out and emotional. I, I couldn't even wrap my head around like leaving the house. And then once I kind of started to feel like, okay, like I, I can go early and people won't be out and I can be socially distant and everything. So I did start to venture out. And now I'm kind of like back into my routine now that being outside is, we understand that that being outside, activities outside are, are relatively safe. It was pretty weird in the beginning because it was just, yeah, it was just so quiet and you really wouldn't see a lot of people. And I run with a mask, so that's also just difficult. <laughs> You don't get the same airflow that you would normally get. But it's been kind of an interesting way as well to sort of like see the city come back to life because I go out a few times a week and I mix up my route all the time. So it's, you know, whichever direction I feel like going in. Sometimes I go over the bridge into Manhattan. In the beginning, I, I ran over and I went to Chinatown and it was really, really desolate. And then more recently, going back over the Manhattan Bridge there's a lot more life coming back. So it's been interesting to see sort of like what businesses started to reopen and everything. But yeah, running has kind of been definitely something that's helped me get through this whole thing. Me too. There's nothing like running in New York. I remember before I moved from New York to the suburbs, I loaded up my iPod with a mixtape of uh, of all these Zeppelin songs. I was living downtown at the time and I ran all over the place and I can still remember that run. And that's sort of what led me to, to think of the question. So for our listeners that don't know, Gage and Tallner is one of the most historic restaurants in New York City. And I know that you guys are going to be getting ready to open up very soon. What should we look for special on the pastry side or anything that you'd want to mention about the reopening? I'm very excited about this. And I know that the city itself is excited. I mean, again, for people that listen that are from New York, they know. But Gage and Tallner is literally a part of New York City history. And it's, it's such an amazing thing that you're... Yeah. You know, I mean, the restaurant itself is landmarked. It's a landmarked interior. It's New York is a guest. What aspect of the menu or any part you want to talk about, are you, are you really sort of excited to unveil if you could share that with us? Oh my gosh. I'm so, the, the menu, uh, specifically speaking about the dessert menu is like the menu of my dreams. I'm so excited for whenever we're allowed to to open. <laughs> it's the menu of my dreams. I don't know if I can pick a favorite because I, I think about each dessert and like my whole heart is in it. But there's some really, really fun stuff on the menu. There's a uh, baked Alaska for two. So we do all the ice creams in house. It's That's three so layers. Of... If there was any dessert that I would associate with Gage and Tallner, it would be baked Alaska classic that goes, but no, seriously, that's so cool. Well, and I, it's funny, like we, we did so much research on the menus, sweet and savory. I mean, we, you know, Brooklyn Historical Society has like 
every single menu that they ever had. So, and we went, Edna Lewis was the chef there for a period and I have all of her books. I mean, she's, she's always been a, a hero of mine. So, you know, we did a ton of research, but from day one, I knew Ben and Sohi and, and Sinjin were we're hoping to, you know, take on this project and restore and reopen Gage and Tolner. And from that very first meeting I had with Sohi, she was like, well, what, you know, what would you think about, you know, the dessert menu, what comes to mind? And I was like, I don't know why, but baked Alaska. It was like the first thing we talked about. <laughs> so it's really special. It's yeah. Three flavors of ice cream made in house and those get layered and then it gets covered in Swiss meringue and, um, blowtorched right before it leaves the kitchen. It's so much fun. It's so much fun. But I mean, the whole menu is just like, it's my dream. There's a chocolate souffle, there's cheesecake, there's a bubble rum, which we light on fire at the table. It's just a blast. So we're really, really excited. I'm so looking forward to that. And I know all of New York is. And, um, you know, I just want to say, Caroline, thank you for being so generous with your time. And, you know, we deal with a lot of different restaurants here, and I've been in this business for a while. And I just want to say, I really believe that you're everything that's right about this industry. And for people that are, are aspire to be uh, in this industry, be it as a pastry chef or anything, I would insist that you go to Caroline's social media Check out her Instagram. It's Pastry Schiff, S-C-H-I-F-F. Obviously, to learn more about Gage and Tolner, you can go to gageandtolner.com. But I, I so enjoyed this conversation, Caroline. I really appreciate everything that you've done. You you lead with kindness. That's my take from you. And I try to do the same. And I'm just really glad that we had this opportunity to have this conversation. I've enjoyed it immensely. Thank you so, so much. This was such an honor, a pleasure. And thank you so much for all you do for our industry. I mean, I know that your workers have been throughout COVID, going to work every day, keeping supplies moving so that chefs can continue to cook for essential workers for and, you know, for their teams. And I think that we don't always remember like how the food got to the table and your company and the people who work for you are one of the reasons why we've all been able to get through this. So we're really, really grateful. Thank you, Caroline. I'm going to pass that on. I look forward to Gage and Tolner and following you on Instagram. And again, thank you again uh, for this interview. Thank you so much. That was Caroline Schiff, the executive pastry chef at Gage and Tolner, and one of my absolute favorite people in this industry. If there's ever someone who can be a global ambassador for the hospitality industry in New York. I think it should be Caroline. I, I'm nominating her. And um, it was a great interview, a lot to learn from that interview as well. Caroline's built an unbelievable career and, a, and an amazing personal brand by following her passion and backing it up with hard work and um, just such respect for her. The book I want to recommend for this week is a collection of stories by the author Anne Beattie, and the collection is called Secrets and Surprises. I'm recommending it because we were discussing in the podcast interview about humanity and authenticity and a greater appreciation of things. And I think all of those themes are really well explored in this collection of very enjoyable and memorable stories. And I think you'll enjoy the uh, the collection as well. For those of you that have been emailing me and, and DMing me, I, I thank you. I read everyone's email and DMs, and I look forward to your questions, your comments, your opinions. So please email me at steven 
at WoolcoFoods.com, or you can DM me at WoolcoFoods on Instagram. And um, really appreciate those of you that take the time to do that and all of you that are listening. If you enjoy the podcast, please recommend it to a friend that would be interested and please subscribe. And I hope that each and every one of you have an awesome, awesome day and um, just a wonderful rest of your week. Thank you for listening to The Profitable Table fed by Woolco Foods. Please be sure to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And to learn more about Woolco Foods or Stephen Toberoff, please visit us at woolcofoods.net. <laughs>